Hi, I'm Steve Thomas. This is Cacophony. Let's dive into some music. But first, a warning. This episode contains science and 1970s electronic music. People often tell me that when listening to Cacophony, they always learn something new or interesting, even if they already know the music that we're talking about. I reckon we'll all learn heaps in this episode, as we head into space with the question, what does the solar system sound like? Some time back, I interviewed the wonderful jazz musician and academic Willie Ruff. We talked about the terrific horn piece that Billy Strayhorn wrote for him shortly before his death in 1967. But Professor Ruff has had a long, varied and distinguished career, and he really wanted to talk about his teacher at Yale, the great German composer Paul Hindemith the astronomer Johannes Kepler, and how he, Willie, was able to complete a 350-year-old project to create a musical rendering of Kepler's Harmony of the World. The result is a fascinating and hypnotic piece of electronica, and you can see why it would be a career highlight, as Harmony of the World was then picked to be one of the select treasured artefacts from Earth to be sent into space on the Voyager spacecraft's gold discs sent into space for the education of any extraterrestrials who may find them. As of today, the voyages are over 23,500 million kilometres from Earth, beyond Pluto, in interstellar space. It's amazing. I'm joined by science communicator and author Simon Clark to make sense of Kepler's science and Willie Ruff and John Rogers' realisation of it for the ear. But first, here's Willie Ruff telling the story in his own style. At Yale, I got exposed to Paul Hindemith, who changed my world. He had a course called The History of the Theory of Music. And at the same time, he was writing an opera called The Harmony of the World, full opera on the life of Johannes Kepler. Yeah. Whose three laws of planetary motion are legendary i mean it's it's just the stuff that that music is is made of there and he was taken with kepler's life because kepler had also been run out of his native austria yeah just as hitler had run uh, you know paul Hindemith out of there because he married a jew he was a concertmeister in the frankfurt uh, opera house mm-hmm. and he was 19 years old concertmeister right? wow so he married the boss's daughter, and that was unacceptable there. He was he was persona non grata, as, as, they, as they say. But he got this class on the history of the theory of music, interested in Kepler's life and the science that he represented, because for the first time, three laws of, of planetary motion were established and firmly accepted. That way. Yeah. Now, this is, this is 17th time, century? That's right, 1600s, like by around 1619, his great treatises started to pour out. Now, I had been teaching at Yale, and I actually taught a class on the musical astronomy of Johannes Kepler. And at the time, the computer, as we know it, it had no place on university campuses, but it had a place at Bell Labs, which was in the backyard of Princeton University. Right. So a great, great geologist 
named John Rogers, who was also a fabulous pianist and mathematician, we pooled our resources and hired a graduate student at Princeton to allow us to give him the the figures that Kepler had laid out that way so that we could sweep out all of these distances and consonances and rhythms yeah. that Kepler promised were in the solar system. Kepler's three laws of motion, or planetary motion. Mm. Explain, please. These are really fundamental things. These are like proper, much like Bach, I suppose, is the building block of Western music. Like this is a big building block of how we view the universe, because this was the pedestal that Newton put his theory on and based it all off of. So this is like almost primordial science that lays the foundations of what we think of as modern science. So it's absolutely critical. And yet we all get taught Newton's laws. Well, I've never heard of Kepler. Newton is the more the the general description of gravity, and so you know he drew on Kepler's laws and the observations that Kepler was using to formulate those laws. But he went that one step further, and he founded modern physics really in terms of thinking of things in terms of forces, in terms of fields, and a lot of the the nomenclature that we use today comes from yeah. this. So Kepler's laws of motion describe how planets orbit around the sun. Uh, what Kepler did was look through observations of how the planets moved across the sky, plotted out where that meant they were in the solar system, and then came up with these laws that described how that motion took place. Should I go through them in order? Go on then, yeah. So so the first one states that a planet will orbit the sun in an ellipse. An ellipse has two foci, two focus points, one of which is the sun. And before that, we thought that they went in a circle? Uh, I'm not certain, but I believe so. Well, if in doubt, you go for the simplest solution possible, which would be a circle. And, you know, you saw them moving across the sky. You probably believed that they were in a circle around the Earth. But then you had things like retrograde motion, where the planet would appear to take a little kind of detour and and do a little loop-the-loop, which is an effect of the Earth going around the sun, as is the other planet. So from our perspective, it would appear that the planet would sometimes stop and do these other weird motions, which you can explain with lots of complicated stuff if you're in a geocentric orbit, you know, with everything going around the Earth, or... Much simpler, if you just say that everything's going around the sun, suddenly you realise they are these paths. So the second law is, in a way, I think, the most interesting, because uh, people previously would have thought that the planets moved in a constant velocity. They were they were in a constant speed going around the sun. Whereas Kepler's second law states that the line that joins the planets to the sun sweeps out the same area in equal intervals of time, meaning if you were to wait for five minutes and you drew a line from where the Earth is to the sun and then and where the Earth was five minutes previously when you started the measurement, that area is going to be the same no matter where you choose that 
five minutes or that 10 minutes or whatever the mm -hmm. increment of time is. So in other words, the speed of the planet changes yeah. depending on where you are in the orbit. The further out you are at your aphelion, you are moving very slowly and you're very moving very fast at your perihelion. And that makes sense because at some stage you get to the furthest point away and you have to start coming back. But I think the simplest way to think of it is in terms of energy, because with the further away the, what you are, you have much more gravitational potential energy. And then as you fall closer, you've converted some of that potential energy into kinetic energy, into mm -hmm. your moving energy. So necessarily, your velocity is going to increase. And then there is also a empirical law. I'm going to read this. I can't claim to have memorized <laughs> this one. That the ratio of the square of an object's orbital period with the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit is the same for all objects orbiting the same object. So hang on, what's that mean? So the third law basically says that there's a constant ratio between the square of the time it takes for the planet to go around an object with the cube of the radius that it orbits that planet at. So there's a constant relationship between those two properties, which is given by the strength of gravity. Those two properties being the, sp the speed and the radius. Yes. So it's, it's not something that's necessarily easy to conceive of. It's something that I think is easy in retrospect. Once you know the equation for gravity and yeah. you know the equation for how quickly something moves around us in a circle, then suddenly it's like, oh, yes, well, obviously that's got to be true. But for somebody to go through the data and to point out that wait a minute, if you take that number and cube it and you take that number and square it, then those two are in the same ratio. You know, you divide one by the other, you get the same value over and over again. Um, cool. Which is a piece of brilliance. Yeah. Like that's, that's just someone trawling through the data and making a brilliant observation. It wasn't his data. I think he was taking it from, from someone else, which is one of the things that typified science in this period. You would correspond with other scholars and write letters to people saying, oh, I've made these observations. You know, this is what I think about it. What do you think? And Kepler was one of these people who received this data and thought, oh, well, if I do this and I tweak these numbers, then something interesting pops out, which is, of course, how modern science works. This period, what we call the Republic of Letters, was the sort of crucible of modern science, this idea of data moving freely between all of these in interesting people mm. and data that was only just being collected because people had only just started creating things like telescopes and thermometers and barometers and all of these things that allowed you to quantify the natural world. So this was the first time that people could write this stuff down and tease these relationships out. Cool. That's cool. So how does he get from that to the idea of music of the spheres and celestial harmony? Well, the music of the spheres, as I understand it, is a very ancient concept. This idea that you had these spheres that were orbiting around the Earth and that they made music, a chord, because the speed of the planets was believed to be constant. So you could imagine that the velocity of each planet, the rate at which it went around the Earth, you could translate to a pitch. The faster it moved, the higher the pitch. Yeah. And so if you had all these planets stacked on top of each other, they would have made a chord. Whereas, based on Kepler's laws, you actually have these planets that vary in speed, and so you have planets that vary in pitch. But of course, they vary in pitch at different speeds because of how far out they're orbiting. It's not a whole chord where all of the tones shift at the same rate. You have each note in that chord varying pitch at slightly different amounts, which means you get this in this interesting you know, moments where it all becomes very harmonious and then it will become discordant again quite rapidly. Mm. So the, the planet makes a noise because it's moving through something and it generates a wave. 
Well, in the actual solar system, you wouldn't hear anything because the planets, much as they, they are moving through stuff, they're moving through tiny amounts of dust and the solar wind and there are particles that are between the planets, but they're so insubstantial that you can't really say that they are creating sound because sound is just a wave through a fluid. And in order for a fluid to be a fluid, you need a certain density of whatever it is, whether that's water molecules or gas molecules or whatever it is. And there's not enough of that between the planets for you to form a sound. So this is a much more abstract kind of, let's yeah. assign a pitch to a speed and then vary it based on, you know, whatever. So I'm getting the idea that although it's less dense and doesn't really in actual real world make a noise, that it's like when you flick a tea towel or swish a skipping rope through the air and you get that whooshing sound. So that's the basic concept of how you get the sound from the planets moving around. Yeah, the skipping rope is a fantastic example because anybody who's done that will know that the slower you do it, it's more of a woof, yeah, woof. Whereas if you start doing it very quickly, it increases in pitch and increases in pitch. So yes, that's 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 exactly what's going on. Where so the speed that you are flipping the skipping rope at a given moment is the speed of the planet in its orbit, and that speed can be worked out using Kepler's laws. Ace, does the speed of the orbit give us a frequency that then that then translates to an, a note yes i believe that's how they would have done it is um because you you know you do have a orbital frequency which is just one over the time period that it takes to orbit around the sun obviously for the earth that's one year for mercury it's what 88 days for for pluto not that it's a planet it's several hundred years so you do have a frequency but then that's only one value for the entire orbit. You don't get that varying of pitch. So what you'd have to calculate is the the orbital speed at a given moment, yep. which, depending on how elliptical the orbit is, would, would vary much more. I think it's Venus that has the most circular orbit. So Venus's pitch would barely change at all. But if Pluto were to be included, that would vary quite significantly because it has a very elliptical orbit. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting it now. And then with the advent of computers you can get that to be generated. As you said, it would be inaudible if it was done in real time. Yes. So on the recording, it's all sped up. This is the New York Times article that says, the tones are not exactly what one would hear standing in the centre of the sun because there the sounds would be so low as to be inaudible to the human ear. The synthesised celestial song has been speeded up with five seconds representing one Earth year yep. so that the human ear can perceive it. So if you speed it up, it brings the pitch up. So William and John called it a realisation for the ear mm. rather than anything else because he said something like Kepler couldn't make it real, but they could. Yeah, it's taking it's taking a sort of a dream because you, you, I could imagine that Kepler would have... You could think of it in these terms. You could You could imagine calculating this, but it would have been just so far beyond... Would it have been far beyond... I suppose you could have just done it at set intervals, but they probably didn't have enough information to be able to do it. You're talking mm. about planets that can take centuries to orbit around the sun. They wouldn't have had enough information, I think, to have definitively known this is what Jupiter would have sounded like. This is this is the path that it takes in its orbit. Um, yeah. So we're speaking with the benefit of technology, but also several centuries of observations. 
This is making the scientist artist part of my brain make me want to do this myself. <laughs> this is the curse of trying to be, be, be trained as a scientist, but then also do artsy stuff. <laughs> One is constantly trying to interfere with the other. I am now tempted to try and code up myself because I think with modern computers, it wouldn't actually be too difficult. <laughs> you know, we're talking about people making this music several decades ago when it was a real feat to to, to get this to work. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic idea. I really, really love it. Here's a bit more from Willie Ruff, with the story of how his and Kepler's Harmony of the World ended up on the gold discs and out of this world. It hit the press like a bomb here, <laughs> because uh, it was on the front page of the Tuesday edition of the New York Times. And two days later, my telephone rang in my office at Yale. It says, is this Professor Ruff? I said, yes. He said, this is Carl Sagan at the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. We just read about Kepler's three laws, finding expression, and on a spacecraft that we're sending out, actually, to Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, we think that Kepler's three laws of planetary motion deserves a place, along with some of the music of children from Earth, speech all kinds of classical music, American music, and music from Earth, <laughs> spaceship, right? Yeah. So it's it's out there now, along with Louis Armstrong and, you know, Duke Ellington and all of the great music from down here. But it won't be intercepted again. It's beyond our range now. But they tell us that it, it will be traveling for the next 40,000 years. So uh, I won't hold my breath. I wonder who will pick it up. Yeah, we, we all do. You don't get many people who've got something on the Voyager Gold Discs. No, I do find it interesting as well that there's music from Earth and then also the rest of the solar system. It's sort of putting all the Earth music in context, I suppose. The disc has got a set of sounds on it and a set of music on it and greetings on it. The music, they've got lots of different things from, from tribes and indigenous populations around the world, which is really cool. And then for classical music, they've got three pieces by Bach, hmm. amongst other things, because they thought that if an alien picks this up, by having three pieces by the same composer, you get an idea of how that language worked for them. Yes, I can see that. And it gave them a better chance of decoding things. And I suppose you could argue that if you have an understanding of how Bach approached things, you have an understanding of basically Western music. You know, that's the foundation stone of so much of what came subsequently. Yeah, it's really interesting yeah. to explore what choices they made and how they came to them. And then there's a whole world of different sounds, like Willie said about the, the baby crying and so on. And the Kepler disc is on that bit. And then they recorded all these greetings. And the greetings are fab because they're all in different languages mm. and different dialects. And so many of the different nations are just saying, you know, hi, or they're giving their traditional greeting or saying, we hope this finds you. But there are two Chinese dialects. There's one that's Amoy or Jamen Hokien, where they say, Friends of space, how are you all? Have you eaten yet? Come visit <laughs> us if you have time. Well, that's great. And then the Mandarin one says, We're thinking about you all. Please come here and visit when you have time. Wonderful. I love that sort of hospitality sense of things. It's really cool. The idea that, you know, what happens if this reaches an alien race where they have no idea what eating means? Yeah, yeah. 
they discussed whether they would have a, a longer message that was just sort of one or two languages that would give the aliens a, a better chance to understand the language. Mm. But instead, they decided to send similar messages from loads of languages so that they could represent the whole of Earth as one collective body. Yeah, which is interesting because I think you could argue that makes it more, the purpose of it was more for humans. It's more, this is who we are and this is our diversity rather than helping someone else understand. So it's actually quite a human-centric yeah. project rather than an alien-centric yeah. project, which is interesting in itself. But it's a, it's a very humble one, and I like that a lot. Mm. I do have one more question, mm -hmm. which is, is it music? Oh, blindly <laughs> ask a philosopher. Uh, I would say it's music. I mean, music at its most fundamental is a sequence of pitches played over time to elicit an emotional response. And I think an intellectual response is absolutely an emotional response. So this is something that is constructed from different pictures that varies over time and it elicits a feeling within me. I'd say that's music. So let's have a listen. Click on the link in the show notes to hear Willie Ruff and John Rogers' Realisation for the Ear of Johannes Kepler's Harmony of the World. It's on YouTube only, and it's a slightly strange one. It comes in two parts. First, they lay down the sounds of the different planets. Tones for the planets known to Kepler. Rhythmic pulses for the others, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto. And then there's two 22-minute songs, representing 264 Earth years, or a little bit longer than one year on Pluto. And it's like, well, late 70s experimental electronic music. As Simon and Willie said, it goes through phases of relative harmony and disharmony, consonance and dissonance. And the changes happen over extended periods. So at first it sounds like a short loop of the same thing, but gradually one becomes aware of larger shifts in what's going on. You sort of notice that it's not the same as it was. It's pretty hypnotic. This is, of course, something that would keep going on forever, or at least as long as the solar system itself. So don't feel like you have to listen to the whole thing. Eavesdrop on as much or as little as you like. Back in the day, even stereo was fairly new, so Willie advocated listening on headphones for best effect. I think Harmony of the World might work really well as something to have on as you drop off to sleep, contemplating deep sleep and deep thoughts about our beautiful corner of the universe. But do let me know what you think. Maybe give me an answer to the big question. Is it music? If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, you must know somebody who you think would like Cacophony. Who are they? Please share Cacophony with them. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and please sign up too for the new newsletter make sure you're getting the most out of Cacophony. If you'd like to support us financially, that would be wonderful. Please click on the links to the page at coffee.com where you can make a one-off or regular contribution. More usual musical fare next time on Cacophony, and in a couple of episodes, more from Simon Clarke on his big passion for choral music. Please come back for more next time, and thanks for listening.